Well, good morning, beloved. It's time to give our attention to God's Word. So if you will open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we are beginning a new series this morning through Mark's Gospel uh, in a series that we have called Follow Me, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And what we want to do, as, as is commonly the case with uh, studies of the Gospels, is we want to take a long, hard look at Jesus, who He is, what He's done for us, uh, how we may know Him, and follow him as he commands. Now when we come to Mark's gospel, one of the questions that hangs over the gospel and hangs right over our text is who is Jesus? And not only who is Jesus, but the question is, the next question is, well, what is the gospel? What did Jesus do? I want to suggest to you this morning that, that those are the most important questions we could ever be asked and that we could ever answer. Because the answer to those questions and whether or not we believe the Bible's answers to those questions and trust ourselves to the Bible's answers to those questions. Well, that, that defines what kind of life we have now and what kind of life we will have eternally. So nothing could be more important than that we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, what the gospel is. And that's the thing for our sermon this morning as we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. There, I think we have three things that we could say about Jesus and the gospel. Number one, the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Number two, the gospel is about cleansing. The gospel is about cleansing. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And then number three, the gospel is about baptism. The gospel is about baptism. Mark chapter 1 verses 4 to 8. And so as we look at this text this morning, let us plumb the meanings of the gospel. Follow along with me as we read Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we thank you for this baptism of the Spirit. We thank you for giving yourself to us, indeed, immersing us in yourself. We pray, O oh Lord, that this great delight of knowing you, having you, being having our lives hidden in you, would be our delight this morning. Bless the preaching of your word, we pray. Bless the hearing of your word, we pray. Bless the doing of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So first thing that Mark gets to here is that the gospel is about Jesus. 
Mark, Mark makes that plain from the opening line. He doesn't, he doesn't bury his lead. And in fact, this is one of the qualities of Mark's gospel. He is like right away into the action. The most frequent word you'll read in the gospel is immediately and then, immediately and then. And so we get that style right from the break. The opening line isn't even a complete sentence. It's a fragment. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so he announces the theme of this book, really. He aims to show us what the gospel is, and he aims to show us the gospel from the beginning to the middle and through the end. Now that word gospel, as many of you will know, comes from a Greek word which means good news. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, where that word is used to, to translate um, certain words in the Old Testament, it's usually associated with good news about, say, a military victory. In the time of, of Mark in the New Testament, that good news would also be associated with things like, like emperors and rulers. For example, many believe that Caesar Augustus was a god. So in the year 9 BC, they celebrated Caesar's birthday, and they said that his birthday was a birthday that signaled the beginning of good news for the world. It could be that Mark is challenging the claim of, of the emperor by applying this very idea to Jesus. But in the Greek world, the, the word that's translated good news is always used in the plural. In the Greek and Roman world, it's as if they're saying, hey, here's some good news among a lot of other kinds of good news. But here's the interesting thing in the Bible. In the Bible, that word is always used in the singular. This is the good news, as if to say that there is no other good news at all. So when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the good news that is above all other news, the good news that is so good that all other news ceases to be good. And that's how Mark begins his gospel. He's like, forget what you heard. I'm going to tell you the only good news there truly is. Notice what he says. The one and only true good news gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's news about a person, a real historical figure. He's not a myth. He is not the creation of uh, religious people. It's not something plucked out of imagination. This gospel tells us about the real-life story of the man from Galilee, Jesus. And Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. Christ is a word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah. Both of those words, Christ and Messiah, uh, means to anoint or anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were offices that were anointed, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. Uh, they would literally be anointed with oil, uh, and that would be a symbolic religious ceremony that set that person apart as chosen for that role. So the anointed one, the true and ultimate anointed one, is the one that God has chosen to fulfill his mission in the world. Mark tells us from the break that Jesus is God's anointed king. He's God's a chosen uh, Christ. But more than that, notice, Mark tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, 
in the Old Testament, the Son of God is used in various ways. And I want to spend just a moment on this because we can run into people in the neighborhood who uh, are coming from cultic religions who will want to use the ways in which the Son of God is used in the Old Testament as a way of undermining the claim of Jesus' unique sonship. So let's sort of survey that real quickly. Uh, the first place that the phrase Son of God is used is actually in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. Where there, the Bible says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and married them. Now, there's a great sort of debate about what's meant there. Is that a reference to angels who leave their natural estate? Is that a reference to the kings of the earth and so on? But there, there that title is used. The second time we see that title used, however, is in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 to 23 where Son of God refers to the entire nation of Israel. God calls Israel my firstborn son. And while the nation of Israel had a unique family relationship to God, they failed to really live up to that title. So Israel would not adequately represent God. They wandered into sin. They dabbled in idolatry. By the time you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, they reject God's rule over them. So there's a change in how that title is used. The, the phrase Son of God begins to be applied more exclusively to the kings of Israel instead of to Israel, the entire nation. So the king of Israel becomes God's representative on earth. And so God makes special promises to them, like the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, where we read these words. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here you got God saying to King David, I'm going to give you a son. And one of your sons, I'm going to choose and, and virtually adopt him to be my son. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And that promise to David becomes the heart of the Davidic covenant and the anticipation of a Davidic ruler who would rule forever on David's throne. So in the Old Testament, the Son of God then began to be tied together um, with, with other ideas because, in fact, all of the kings of Israel also fail. They fail to represent God. They drift into idolatry. They drift into sin. So, so these other themes begin to merge as you read through the Old Testament. Son of God began to be tied together either with this idea that there would be a, a faithful remnant, a faithful few who, who remained loyal to God. Those would be the sons of God. Or, you see, this other thing, that the Son of God would be this unique individual who would suffer and die to atone for the sins of his people. And so you see those themes in places like Psalm 22, Psalm 69, the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49 and 50, 52 and 53. All of these things begin to sort of come together, though, in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the unique Son of God. 
The rest of the gospel centers on him and centers on how he fulfills all those fragmentary themes, all those imperfect pictures of the Son of God, Israel and kings and so on, how he becomes the actual Son of God who fulfills all that God has wanted to do in the world. He is the fulfillment of the nation's hopes. He is the one who suffers for his people's sins. He is the king that rules perfectly in righteousness. The gospel is about this Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Now this may seem obvious, so obvious that you, you wonder why it needs to be stated, but let me say it anyway. If the gospel is about Jesus, then the gospel is not about you and me. Sometimes we act as if we're the stars of our own movie and everybody else, including Jesus, is a supporting actor. I mean, Jesus might get the, the Oscar for the best supporting actor, but, but we're in the main role. We're, we're the stars and everything else is organized around us. But, but if the gospel is all about Jesus, that means that those who believe the gospel, their lives must be all about Jesus too. That Jesus is at the center of this drama, this cosmic drama, in which God is redeeming for himself a people. Beloved, let me ask you this morning, if you consider yourself a Christian, is that you? Is Jesus the star of your life? Is your life, like the gospel, all about Jesus? All about the fact that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior. All about the fact that he is the Son of God who rules your life. Is that you and me? Or do we treat him like a supporting cast member? Do we need to repent of acting as if our lives are at the center and what matters most? Do we need to turn from that sin, that idolatry of self, and turn in fresh ways to put Christ at the center of who we are and how we live? Because the first thing to understand about the gospel is that the gospel is all about Jesus. But that brings us to a second thing to understand about the gospel uh, in the opening here of Mark. Uh, the gospel is all about cleansing. The gospel is all about cleansing. That's what I get from verses 2 and 3 here. Notice what Mark writes. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now in the Bible, the, the gospel did not begin, notice, with Jesus' birth. The gospel begins century, er, centuries earlier, with promises that God made through his prophets. So when Mark begins quoting the Old Testament prophets, he's really showing us that the Bible is one story in two parts. The Old Testament begins with promises of a Savior. The New Testament begins with the fulfillment of that promise. So you might think of your Bibles as the Old Testament as promises made and the New Testament as promises kept. Specifically now, Mark quotes here a, a part of God's promises in Isaiah and Malachi. He kind of sandwiches them together. First of all, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. That's the part that says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Then he quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Now, when you're reading the New Testament, it's helpful to know that the New Testament authors often use a little device. That they will very often quote a passage of scripture, not just to focus on that individual quotation, but to sort of bring to mind for the reader the whole context from which that passage is quoted. It's kind of like uh, the way we tell remember when stories sometimes. You, know, you tell a story, you say, hey, you remember when so-and-so happened? And if people know that story, they, they all kind of laugh. They don't even need you to finish it. So, so if I said to you, hey, um, you remember that time when Rudy Huxtable sang that song to her grandparents on The Cosby Show? Now, anybody familiar with The Cosby Show know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't have to tell the rest of the story. In fact, some of y'all are sitting out there talking about, baby, baby, that memorable scene that calls to mind an entire story. Well, the writers in the New Testament write that way sometimes. They, they, they pluck a verse out of a context uh, and they use that verse to remind of the context, of the whole story. We're not Jewish people steeped in, in Jewish religion and culture, so, so we can miss this dynamic. But Mark knew his audience, and he knew his audience would remember the fuller context of Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. So let's read them in context so we know what the rest of the story was. Mark chapter, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's the part that Mark quotes. Now notice this. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. You see, the context of Malachi is about God coming to his people and God sending an announcer to announce that he's coming. And God, when he comes, refining his people, purifying them from their sins and, and purifying their worship. It's about revival as God comes to his people and his people come to God. We see the very same thing in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. Look there with me. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So you see, Isaiah seeing uh, uh, the very same thing in, in different words, different pictures. He's saying, hey, comfort my people. God is coming to visit his people. He will end their warfare. He will pardon their sin. In fact, make, make a flat, smooth pathway for God to come. We're going to behold his glory. And that's what these passages beautifully promise, famously promise. 
that God is going to come to his people and his people are going to behold his glory. Malachi says the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Isaiah says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, revealed and all flesh shall see it together. But now there's a problem in these texts. And the problem is this, sin. These texts take sin seriously. We live in a world that takes sin lightly. We live in a world who, that thinks that uh, our predilection to sin and our preferences for sin may easily coexist with a God of our own imagining, a God of our own making. But the Bible tells a very different story about sin. The Bible tells us that, that sin separates us from God. That sin corrupts our soul. That sin kills us. That sin angers our holy God. And that sin deserves God's wrath. Sin is anything but light. Sin is a serious problem. And if a holy God visits a sinful people, then his holiness will consume us like California wildfires that burn everything in their path. In fact, this is the picture the Bible gives us over and over of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2, our God is a consuming fire. Or Isaiah 33, verse 14, which says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with everlasting burdens? These are the questions that sinners with good sense ask. They, they see their sins and they, they are afraid. They tremble before God. They are godless, the text says, but they don't act like God is less. They see that God is holy and God is powerful and they tremble and they say, who of us can survive in his presence given our sin? See, if God were to come in hall of his holiness and judgment against sin, beloved, what would you do? Our sin is a serious problem. But ultimately, what Mark calls the beginning of the gospel, when he cites Isaiah and Malachi, is a prophecy about a time when the people will have their sin cleansed. The gospel is about cleansing. From the beginning, the gospel was always about God cleansing us of things we cannot cleanse ourselves of. So Malachi asked, if you remember the passage again, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Then he answers, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to God. God will purify us. That's the good news. We, we come to him uh, with so many contaminants, with so many pollutions, with so many corruptions. We come to him soiled and dirty because of our sin. And there he is like a, a blacksmith, flaming burning off our sin, burning off our dross, burning off our contaminants. That's part of why the gospel is good news. God is coming. He is holy, yes, but he is also purifying his people. Isaiah says it simply. 
her iniquity is pardoned. And he announces that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Imagine that. A double reward for a single curse. That's the good news. The, these are texts that announce that a, announce to us a God who not only is coming, but a God who is also cleansing. And that's what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. The consuming fire and wrath of God is poured out on the Son of God, who sheds his blood on the cross for our sins, for our transgressions. He, the Son of God, was perfect, had no sins to die for. What he did was volunteer to die in our place for our sins. And the shedding of his blood is the fuller soap. It is the agent that cleanses us, washes us, purifies us of sin. So that now anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus, they are cleansed by his blood. God comes to us and washes us of all of our sin. See, these texts that he quotes from Malachi and, and Isaiah, these are Old Testament gospel passages. These are texts that would have made the ancient Jewish community excitedly happy. It, it was their hope. It, it, it was the hope of the world. Mark was saying that this gospel hope, which began in the prophets, was about to be fulfilled in Jesus, and perhaps is about to be fulfilled in your life if you're with us this morning and you're not yet a Christian. Can you at least see that you're a sinner? And can you at least understand that your sin has angered God, separated from you, separated you from him, and it is the reason why we're in danger of judgment? And can you see that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one of God, the son of God, who dies for your sin to cleanse you of them? If you can even see that a little bit, turn toward that light turn toward that truth and embrace it and pray and ask God to give you forgiveness, to give you eternal life. The gospel is about cleansing. But there's a third thing here. The gospel is about baptism. Verse 4, we're introduced to John the Baptist and we get a very short summary of his ministry. Look with me at verses 4 to 8. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, having quoted in verses 2 and 3, uh, those passages from Malachi and Isaiah that talks about uh, a, a messenger who comes, who, who announces the coming of God, Mark then turns in verse 4 and immediately introduces John. Because John the Baptist, who's actually Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist is that messenger. He is that forerunner of the Messiah who announces the coming of God. He fulfills that promise uh, in the Old Testament. He is the voice uh, of the one crying in the wilderness, according to verse 3. 
Now, when we meet John, we, we see him uh, in that strange description in verse 6. He's clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So John appears to us in the rugged mold of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And, and Jesus himself, when he's later in the Gospels questioning his audience, he says, hey, when you went out to see John the Baptist in the wilderness, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see uh, princes and kings clothed in fine clothing and living in opulent houses? It's like, no, you went out to see a roughneck prophet, an Old Testament prophet in the wilderness calling people to God's messenger. And John's entire ministry was really made up of two things. Number one, announcing that the Messiah was coming. And number two, preparing the people to receive the message and to receive the Messiah. And here's the question. How do you prepare a sinful people to receive a holy God? How do you get people ready for that? Well, according to verse 5, it's baptism, which symbolizes uh, repentance confession and faith. Notice with me in verses 4 and 5 again. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so the three key words uh, in this passage, as I said a moment ago, are baptism, confession, and repentance. So the three key questions to ask is, what is baptism? What is repentance? And what is confession? Let's take them in a reverse order. What is confession? Well, confession requires two things. First, biblical confession requires admitting what was done. Admitting what was done. There can be no genuine confession if there is no admission of wrongdoing. Now, the problem is this. Admission is what uh, most people think of when they when they think of confession. Most people stop there. Well, I admitted it. I confessed it. Right? I, I acknowledged it. And, and in many people's minds, that's the extent of what confession entails. But there's a second thing to biblical confession. Biblical confession also requires agreement. Confession requires we agree with God about the nature of our sin, the extent of our sin, and the effect of our sin. The problem is this, uh, we, we don't often go that far. We don't often go so far as to admit and to agree with God that our sin is actually punishable and we deserve punishment because of it. So in biblical confession, we take God's side and God's perspective of our sin. Now, now, why is it important to go not just to admission, but also to agreement? Well, it's important because as sinful creatures, we have the habit of identifying with the sinner in their sin over identifying with God in his holiness. And, and, and if we are the sinner in question, then we have the habit of giving ourselves sort of every benefit of the doubt, every justification, every rationalization that, that makes our sin just that much less a problem and assures us that, that God is wink, wink, okay with our sin. But that's not biblical confession. Biblical confession agrees with God even against one's self. Now, have you ever, you ever heard or ever said, 
I know blank was wrong, but you ever heard anybody do that? Well, that word but is a magic word. It erases everything that came before it. You know, I was, wrong, I was wrong when I said that to you, but if you hadn't said that to me, you know, you just erased the confession. You, you gave a, 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 a weak admission, but you didn't go on to agree with God about how wrong the actual act was, the sin was. This is why when we confess to people like that, it doesn't really seem to patch the relationship, does it? So I know I was wrong, but if you hadn't said this or if you hadn't done that, you know, y'all might walk away. We might walk away from a confession and a reconciliation like that, but something doesn't sit right, does it? We're not really done with it because the person hasn't actually agreed with God about the seriousness of the sin. So to be prepared for God's coming, we have to confess our sins. Preparation to receive God requires that we admit and that we agree with God about our sins. It's the same in human relationships too. But here's the second question. What then is repentance? Well, repentance literally means to change your mind with the result that your behavior and life changes too. So as with confession, it, it might be helpful to be careful here, to make some distinctions and to clarify uh, that definition a little bit further. So let's distinguish repentance from confession. They are, they are close cousins, they are, they are related, but they're not quite the same thing. As we just said, when we confess, we admit our sin and we agree with God about the nature, the extent, and the effect of our sin. But we can confess, beloved, without actually going on to repentance. Confession is only step one. Repentance is step two. Repentance is what produces the change. So what is repentance? Well, like confession, repentance has two parts. First, there must be a change of mind. There must be a change of mind. We once thought one way, and that led us to sin. In repentance, we begin to rethink things, and now we think a different way, and that leads us to righteousness, right? Uh, you, you thought something was right and allowable uh, or just plain worth it, and so you went ahead and did it. You went and did that thing that was contrary to God's will, that was sin. But then at some point you recognize it was wrong and forbidden by God uh, and only worth your destruction. And, and so your thoughts change, and as a result, your behavior, your life changed as well. Now let me lean on this just a little bit, because after 20 years of pastoral ministry experience, it seems to me that most claims to repentance fail because there's no real change of mind. People confess their sin, they acknowledge it, admit it, but they don't stop loving their sin because they don't really renew their minds. So the same pattern of thinking that led them into the sin is still right there intact. They, they haven't done that Romans 12, 1 and 2 work, and so they still are thinking the same way about life. They're, they're merely regretting that they got caught or it didn't go well, but, but sort of coming to reevaluate things hasn't actually happened. And, and this is why we return to our own vomit. This is why we go back to our sin. Until the mind is thoroughly renewed, repentance will be shallow and will often be confused with confession. 
But biblical repentance that turns toward God, that requires a radical change of mind, a radical re-evaluation of our thoughts, our values, our desires, and that is what produces change. But now secondly, in biblical repentance, there must also be a change of behavior or life. Again, we once thought in a certain way that led us to sin in a certain way. Now we have rethought things and we have changed our mind about those things in a, in a Godward direction and that leads us to a, a new Godward way of life, righteousness, behavior. Let's illustrate that. Let's say you're Kawhi Leonard and you want to go back to Toronto. You put gas in the car, you jump on 395, headed south. You soon reach 95 south and you, you continue traveling 95 south on the interstate. You're headed the wrong way. But, but you like it. I mean, you stop off in North Carolina, you get some world-class barbecue. You, you've got friends in Atlanta, so you stop off and you, you hang out with them in Atlanta. Uh, you continue to drive and you know at the end of 95 you're going to reach Miami and reach beaches in Florida. You, you, you're going the wrong way, but you're enjoying it. And if you keep going that way, yes, you'll, you'll hit Miami, but you will never hit Toronto traveling 95 south. Further you travel 95 south, the farther away you get from where you said you wanted to be. That's what sin is like. It'll take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. But to get to Toronto now, you have to change your mind about going south. You have to stop enjoying the barbecue places in North Carolina. You, you have to stop uh, thinking about your friends in Atlanta and the good time you're going to have with them. You have to stop dreaming about uh, life on the beach in Miami. You have to reject those thoughts. You have to reject those pleasures that, that occur on the wrong path. And then you have to actually change your mind about where you're going, which direction you're going to take. And you have to change your mind about those desires. So, so you turn around and you travel now 95 north and you go back through Atlanta and you maybe see your friends one more time and you come through North Carolina but you don't stop for barbecue because your, your taste, your desires have changed. You come back through D.C. where you started and then you begin to travel 95 north in a whole new path that you've not been on. And you discover new pleasures. You discover Philly cheesesteaks on the way. You get a slice of New York pizza. You may even catch a show. You see Hamilton on Broadway. And then you keep traveling north until you come to Toronto. Well, that's your destination. That's what repentance is like. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in direction, change in behavior, change in pleasures, change uh, in your desired destination. Now, confession only gets you to admit and to agree. Repentance changes your thinking and points your life in a new direction. So preparation to receive God requires repentance toward God. Which brings us to our third question. What is baptism? Well, baptism is the ritual of immersing or dipping into water. A person who has confessed their sins and who is repenting of their sin. Now, baptism is how the New Testament Christians publicly profess their faith. 
So when I say the gospel is about baptism, I don't really mean it's about the ritual itself. What I mean is it's about what baptism symbolizes, which is conversion. It symbolizes someone who has repented of sin and turned toward God and someone who is now putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their God and their Savior. So baptism symbolizes faith here in God through Jesus Christ. The gospel was always about that. It was always about bringing lost people back to God through faith in his Savior. And from the beginning, the very beginning of the gospel, and the, with the first followers of Jesus, baptism was practiced, was observed. Every clear instance of baptism in the New Testament features an adult who could make credible professions of repentance and faith. The Lord Jesus would later make this a command in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. So that now baptism is commonly referred to as the first act of Christian obedience. We go into the world to make disciples, teaching them what God has commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's in our very mission statement. Our mission statement is just putting the great commission of Matthew 28 into our own words. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. Well, how do we make disciples? We share the gospel with them. We call them to believe it. When they give a profession of repentance and belief, we baptize them. And they begin uh, their membership in the church and begin their lives as followers of Jesus. And this is why we have people share their testimonies when they're baptized. We're just following the pattern in the New Testament. For those who came out to John, notice, they confessed their sins as they spoke in admission and agreement with God about their lives. And they repented of their sins. And so were baptized to profess their faith. It's a beautiful picture of baptism. Not only of faith, but of, of union with Jesus in all that he has done for us. Consider Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So for 2,000 years, the church has practiced this drama, this visual moving picture of the gospel of people who were dead in their sins being buried into the death of Christ and then being raised from that grave, that watery symbolic grave, into newness of life with Christ. So to live a new life, full and abundant, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the gospel has always been about taking dead people having them die again with Jesus and raising them in the power of the resurrection to live with and for Jesus. Again, is that you this morning? Has that happened to you? Have you died with Christ and been raised with Christ through faith in him? And have you professed that in baptism? So that even now, when you look back to your own baptism, you're remembering the saving grace of God and how you encountered the gospel and how you were made alive through faith in Jesus. If you haven't, we, again, would love to talk with you about that. 
and to encourage you any way we can to, to follow Jesus in this way. But what's the result? Why should we come to Jesus? Why should we believe the gospel? Well, I think we get two hints to that in verses 7 and 8. The rest of the gospel will tell us in, in more detail, but we get two hints of, of two results here uh, in verses 7 and 8. Why should we confess and repent and be baptized? Well, for humility and for filling. Verses 7 and 8. And he, that is John, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John sets the example of Christian humility in verse 7. Even though Jesus described John as the greatest man ever born of a woman, John saw himself, in comparison to Jesus, as unworthy even to do the most menial task of a household servant, to untie his shoes. He is professing this. Crowds are coming to him to hear him preach. Crowds are recognizing him as a prophet. You know what's interesting? Nobody in the Gospels ever doubted whether John was a prophet of God. They doubted that about Jesus, but not John. John's at the height of his popularity. Does he get the big head? Does he get swollen with pride? Does he begin to worship his gifts? No, he says, you know what? I see myself in comparison to Jesus. And in comparison to Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. You see, John is saying the gospel is about Jesus. Jesus is greater than I am. He must increase. I must decrease. It is this humility that is the fruit of the gospel in the life of a genuine believer. The gospel brings us gladly low because it sits us next to Jesus, the exalted one. And the gospel has a way of, of reminding us to, to participate in, in this most remarkable quality of God, of, of Jesus himself. But what does Paul tell us in Philippians 2? Though he was equal with God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself, he lowered himself, he emptied himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. And so the gospel comes to us and it brings us low in a beautiful way as we see ourselves in the light of who God is. And in bringing us low, it begins to produce in us that Christ-like quality we call humility. If we need to grow in humility, all we need to do is look at Jesus, look at him hard, look at him long, because none of us are worthy to untie his shoes. He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and is exalted above all the earth. This is the one who comes to us in the gospel. But not only does it produce humility in us, but notice it also produces a kind of feeling. We will be baptized, John says, with the Holy Spirit, not just with water. So the main thing isn't even sort of water baptism. The, the main thing is spirit baptism. God himself will be the substance into which we are immersed. We're not just sort of taken underwater and, and sort of swimming in water. We are swimming in God. We, we are immersed, submerged, plunged into God himself, into his spirit. And his spirit 
fills us and seals us until the day of redemption and empowers us to live as witnesses for God. I mean, verse 8 tells us that the gospel brings God to us in a totally new and unexpected and amazing way. This is not the reality of the old covenant, where people would be filled by the Spirit only temporarily and for certain tasks, uh, prophets and priests and kings. But this is the everyday, ongoing, unchanging reality of the new covenant, of the, of the Christian's relationship with God. And this is the reality of every believer. All Christians are baptized with the Holy Spirit, not just special Christians, not just Christians with certain kinds of experiences, all Christians. Because this, according to Galatians 3, is the promise of the gospel. The Holy Spirit would be ours. We would be baptized into him. He would fill us, unite us to Jesus, and unite us to God. Gospel is about the kind of faith that brings us into a baptized relationship with God. In the end, the gospel is God offering himself to sinners. And in that offer, he promises cleansing and he promises union with himself. And in that offer, isn't he really promise, promising us everything? We want you to get in on this. We, we, we Christians, we don't hold this and keep this to ourselves. We want to give this away liberally. We want you to know God, to be known by God, to be filled with God, be baptized in Him. It's not another experience like it. Come and behold your God, receive Him, prepare for Him, make straight the way by confessing your sins, repenting of them, and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is crucified, buried, and resurrected for you. Then you will live and live abundantly. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the gospel. And your gospel is not about us and, and what we do for you, but it's about Jesus and what he has done for us in dying for our sins on the cross and being raised from the grave for our justification and sending your Holy Spirit to be with us and to keep us until we're together in glory. We give you praise that in your gospel you have made provision for our cleansing for we were soiled with our sin but by your blood you have washed it away. We praise you. And we thank you that we get to have a fellowship with you every day, all day, and for all of eternity. So come near to us. Speak with us. Keep us. And use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name.